Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the Biden administration's foreign policy in East Asia with Scott Busby, the acting principal deputy assistant secretary of state in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, usually known as DRL, at the U.S. State Department, where he currently oversees the Bureau's work on Africa, East Asia and the Pacific, the Western Hemisphere, the human rights of LGBTQI plus persons visas and sanctions involving human rights and business and human rights. And he's been with DRL since 2011, so for a decade. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Scott Busby. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Good to have you. So at least since the Obama administration, there's been this so-called pivot to Asia in the American foreign policy establishment. And this, I think, became especially obvious in the Trump administration when the president promoted a rather contentious relationship with China. How is all this likely to change uh, and to develop under Biden? Well, I think it is striking that ever since the pivot to Asia, Asia, which President Obama initiated, as you said, John, that uh, both uh, the Trump administration and the now Biden administration have continued prioritizing uh, our relationship with uh, that region. Uh, I think that's partly demographically based, uh, but I think it's economically based. So despite the profound other differences uh, between these various uh, administrations, I think there has been significant continuity uh, in the prioritization of the region uh, as a whole. And we see this with the fact that the Trump administration initiated something called the Indo-Pacific Strategy. The Biden administration is continuing with such a strategy, albeit with tweaks. The Trump administration started something called the Quad, namely uh, the, the U.S., uh, India, Japan, and Australia getting together to talk about priorities in the region and coordinating in our response around those priorities. The Biden administration has continued with that quad. Uh, and as we've seen the Biden uh, administration, the first two bilateral summits the Biden administration held uh, were with Japan and South Korea in that order. So I think this all demonstrates that uh, there is bipartisan recognition of the fact uh, that Asia is a very significant reg region and that we need to prioritize our approach to that region. 
So you mentioned that part of the reason for this is demographic. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Well, how do you mean that? I mean, this is obviously an issue uh, now that China has just announced that families are allowed to have as many as three children after the so-called one-child policy for a long time. So could you say a little bit about what you mean by the demographic kind of origins of this shift in policy? Well, I think folks have come to recognize that between China, India, and Indonesia, we have uh, uh, among the largest countries in the world demographically, and many of those countries are growing. Yes, China has tweaked its birth policy to address some of the challenges it foresees in its own population, but as a whole, the region continues to grow uh, demographically uh, at the same time as it is becoming an increasingly important economic Uh, influence in the world. And I think for both reasons, uh, the U.S. and others have come to see it as a a significant, very important region. Indeed. I mean, it's the the, the three countries you're talking about approach 50% of world population. So uh, as our economist colleague, Branko Milanovic at the Graduate Center has recently made clear, um, you know, things that happen in particularly China, uh, but China and India uh, you know, obviously move the needle in big ways uh, when things happen there. So um, so I want to get back to the issue of human rights, which uh, is an important part of the portfolio of the Bureau of which you're a part. Uh, seems to me the Trump administration was rather inconsistent about its pursuit of traditional American concerns regarding human rights in regard to China, and more specifically with regard to Xinjiang and Tibet. Um, how is that likely to change under Biden? And why did Secretary uh, Antony Blinken decide to continue with Secretary Pompeo's determination that genocide is occurring in Xinjiang? I think it's first to recognize that the Trump administration did take very significant actions vis-a-vis Xinjiang and ultimately vis-a-vis uh, Tibet. On Xinjiang, decisions were taken to sanction a number of individuals uh, and entities implicated uh, in the human rights abuses there. Widespread export controls were put in place, which essentially restrict the export of U.S. goods to entities implicated in human uh, rights abuses. And there were put in place uh, so-called withhold release orders that precluded the importation of goods made with forced labor in Xinjiang or elsewhere in China. So I think it is fair to say that the Trump administration took significant actions to address the human rights abuses in China. That said, as you mentioned, John, there was at times inconsistency when the president uh, and others were anxious to strike a trade deal with China. We saw occasional um, uh, easing up Uh, on these tough actions. So there was a sort of oscillation depending on uh, where the administration was uh, at any uh, given uh, moment. I think the biggest change between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, and this is not only as to China, it is really globally, is the fact that the Trump administration often went it alone, often acted unilaterally. So we declared sanctions when we thought it uh, was appropriate to do so. We spoke to others to encourage them to do so, but didn't have much success. The Biden administration sees such coordination as integral to 
uh, implementation of foreign policy generally. So, for instance, on March the 22nd, uh, we announced in conjunction with the EU, the UK, and Canada sanctions on some of the individuals and entities implicated in the abuses uh, in Xinjiang. And uh, we plan and hope to continue with that coordinated approach with our allies because we think that is likely to have far greater impact um, uh, than the unilateral approach taken by the Trump administration. I mean, you know, we've discussed this with a number of guests on this podcast in the past, but they haven't been representatives of the administration. So I think perhaps it's, you know, useful to ask you, you know, how should we think about China? I mean, India is less of a concern. It's less somehow seen, I think, as, you know, at odds with the United States. But China is, you know, obviously the Trump administration regarded Trump China as uh, a serious challenger, a serious, I don't know, opponent. Uh, I mean, I wonder what words you would use to talk about how the Biden administration sees China and, you know, how that perception shapes its policies, is going to shape its policies towards China. Well, Secretary Blinken has regularly talked about China as uh, a competitor, um, as a a country with which we might cooperate it, and then as a country that we may occasionally have to confront So I think uh, he and the Biden administration see the China relationship in a very multifaceted way so that there may be issues uh, on which we are pushing the Chinese hard, uh, such as human rights, uh, at the same time as we're seeking to cooperate with them uh, on climate change, on uh, interdicting uh, uh, the introduction of drugs made in China to the United States, things of that uh, that nature. So I think it's, again, multifaceted, and I think each issue uh, requires uh, a different approach. So I want to turn to some of the other developments in the region now, and perhaps one of the most significant, or certainly one of the most significant in recent months has been the coup, the military coup in Myanmar. And, um, you know, this has led to many deaths, the suspension of civilian rule, Um, Can you tell us how the administration sees the situation there and what you think is likely to happen? Well, the the Biden administration is extremely troubled uh, by the coup that has taken place uh, in Myanmar. Uh, We declared it a coup for legal purposes soon after it took place, which meant that uh, various types of assistance uh, had to be terminated. Uh, we have imposed multiple forms of sanctions, both on individuals responsible for the coup, as well as the entities uh, that benefit those responsible for the, the coup. And those are mostly military-owned uh, enterprise. And we continue to investigate additional, both individuals and entities, uh, we might sanction to, again, cut off um, uh, uh, flow of resources uh, to the military there uh, to try to get them to change uh, their behavior. Um, Hard to say where this is going to go. Obviously, uh, uh, the folks who led the coup uh, were part of the generation that survived for decades 
um, under sanction, but they were extremely isolated over that period of time. And ultimately, uh, they became tired of their of that isolation. Their children, I think, wanted access, greater access to the outside world. And that is what led uh, to the opening there uh, approximately a decade ago. And our hope is that by reapplying some of the same pressure, we will encourage them to think twice about whether they wish to revert to the sort of insular uh, state and society uh, that they were previously. And I'd like to believe, we'd like to believe, uh, that the younger generation of Burmans are not interested in that type of future. Right. So, um, I mean, this is, you know, this general area is part of, I suppose, China's larger kind of sphere of influence. How do you see China's role in this neighborhood and um, how are other countries kind of dealing with China's influence in, in the region? Well, there's no question that China has sought uh, through its Belt and Road Initiative uh, and other similar uh, diplomatic forms of outreach to exercise greater influence uh, over uh, countries, not only in that region, but around the world. We've seen them undertake uh, similar efforts uh, in South Central Asia, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, and in Africa, and even in Latin America. So uh, uh, the U.S. is very concerned about these uh, efforts, uh, and we're doing whatever we can to push back on them. And I think one of the chief ways we can push back is by demonstrating to these countries that ultimately we're a more reliable partner than the Chinese. The Chinese turned a blind eye to corruption. They turned a blind eye to human rights abuses. They're... uh, Uh, economic relationships are often coercive in nature. Uh, And we think by pointing to these sorts of factors, not only to the governments China is trying to influence, but to the people of those countries, that we can ultimately demonstrate to those countries that China is not the way to go, that the U.S. um, is the far more, uh, far better route over the long term to encourage the sort of prosperity, security, and peace that uh, all countries in the world are looking for. Well, since you've mentioned Africa, uh, and I note that that's part of your portfolio at the at DRL, um, I think that's an interesting sort of matter to pursue. Um, you know, you probably saw the report in the New York Times recently about the demographic future of the world, you know, one basically where, uh, you know, increasingly the world does not have replacement rate, uh, you know, reproduction and um, population starts actually to decline in the, you know, not so far off, perhaps in a generation. Um, And, you know, the one place that's really doesn't seem very likely, at least not anytime soon, is, of course, in Africa. Um, So I wonder if you could comment on, you know, your own perceptions of where things are going in Africa, the United States posture towards it. I mean, Africa is obviously a big and complicated place with many different countries and cultures. And um, but since you've also mentioned, you know, the Chinese influence there, I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you see all that uh, unfolding. 
Well, there's no question, John, that the youth bulge uh, you described is one of the most significant continent-wide phenomenon in uh, Africa. And I do think addressing that uh, in various ways is, is absolutely critical. Uh, the Obama administration uh, uh, started something called the YALI program, the Young African Leaders Initiative, which sought to uh, identify and cultivate uh, young leaders in Africa, and that initiative has continued uh, and will uh, continue. So that's one uh, important thing to do, but that touches a relatively small portion of that uh, young population. I think the other thing we need to do is we need to create job possibilities uh, for these folks, uh, as well as stability uh, uh, such that folks can uh, work uh, in ways that are safe, uh, 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 that can last over the longer term. So security and, and prosperity go hand in hand. From a strictly uh, democracy and human rights standpoint, I think the uh, picture is mixed in Africa. There have been some striking positive developments in Africa. One need only look at Sudan, where unexpected sustained protests managed to push out the long-term authoritarian ruler in that country. No one saw that coming. Uh, and while Sudan is still taking baby steps uh, in the direction of democracy, it's not solidified, it's still quite hopeful, and the U.S. is working very closely with the transitional government in Sudan uh, to help them get it right. Um, this morning, I'm meeting with our ambassador to the De Democratic Republic of, of the Congo, and there, too, we see some hopeful signs. The long-time uh, authoritarian ruler, ruler there, Joseph Kabila, stepped down. Elections were held. Everyone expected that his hand-picked successor would be elected in corrupt uh, elections. But in fact, a longtime civil society activist, Felix Chisakedi, son of a, a father who was also very active in the democracy movement in the DRC, Felix was elected president. And while he's had uh, kind of rough couple years since being uh, declared president. He's recently succeeded in uh, gaining effective control of the parliament and is anxious to make many of the reforms that we have long urged that uh, government to make. Indeed, we are, uh, when we meet with the ambassador later today, we're going to talk with him about starting a human rights dialogue with the DRCs to help it get its act in order. Similarly, in Angola, there was a shift in the presidency there. Um, uh, Juan Lorenzo um, uh, succeeded the longtime uh, corrupt president who had been in power. And much to our pleasant surprise, Lorenzo has undertaken a significant number of forms to address corruptions, uh, corruption, abuses, and the like. Again, by no means perfect. There's still lots of challenges in Angola. But these three countries, among others, are countries where there is uh, hope for uh, genuine uh, democratic change. Uh, on the other hand, you have a situation like Ethiopia, which we had some hope for given the uh, seeming liberal democratic uh, event of, of Prime Minister Abe, um, but with the 
a conflict uh, between uh, the Tigrayan uh, political leadership, which had formerly been in power, uh, and Abiy's government. Uh, horrific things have happened. There are uh, horrendous human rights abuses that have taken place, uh, including uh, those committed by the Eritrean security forces who were brought in to help put down the uprising in Tigray, irregular Amhara forces, and then, of course, with the Ethiopian uh, army itself, uh, uh, just horrific abuses. And uh, in addition to the abuses, uh, the Ethiopian government still has prevented the sort of full humanitarian access to the people in need in Tigray. Uh, and that, too, has been very uh, troubling to us. Uh, and, of course, there are a number of other situations where uh, things continue to be bad uh, Zimbabwe, uh, uh, among others. So very mixed picture, but we definitely shouldn't uh, write Africa off, both because, as you emphasize, John, uh, the youth bulge there presents tremendous opportunities, I think, for change, uh, economic opportunities. Um, uh, and because there are people who want genuine democracy and respect for human rights on that continent. Interesting. So, um, I mean, I wonder whether you could say uh, sort of more generally, I mean, the various comments you've made speak to, you know, the American interest in improvements in Sudan or Angola or uh, wherever these countries might be. Um, you know, what is the nature really of that uh, of that interest? John, I mean, why does the United States care Can you what me, happens John? in a relatively small country far, you know, halfway around the world with which it has, I'm guessing, you know, pretty minimal trade relations. I mean, why, why does the United States care about, uh, you know, the arrival of democracy in Angola? Uh, you know, ultimately, and the data shows this, is that countries that are democratic and respect uh, human rights are ultimately uh, more secure more prosperous and make for better allies. Uh, not long ago, I, I read the book, uh, Why Nations Fail, at the encouragement of my son. And I think they do a very compelling analysis of why it is that inclusive societies that respect rule of law are ultimately more prosperous. Yes, the Soviet Union in its early years, uh, as it went, underwent collectivization, enjoyed high levels of economic growth. Same is obviously true of China for the past uh, few decades. But their thesis, with which I agree, is that uh, given the lack of rule of law in those societies, given the lack of public buy-in uh, to what it is the regime is doing, uh, ultimately those countries are simply not going to be able to sustain the sort of innovation uh, an economic energy that is necessary for uh, long-term economic growth. Uh, and I think that does make a powerful case for why a country like, uh, like Angola, like the Gambia, a country of only half a million people, um, ultimately, if and when they become fully democratic, are far, in far better shape for themselves uh, as well as for the United States. Well, so how would you assess, I mean, it's certainly widely thought that um, the world is facing 
you know, a rising challenge of illiberal anti-democratic forces. Um, you know, what are the chances that uh, that kind of scenario that you've just described is really going to play out in the coming years? I mean, what does the Biden administration think? I mean, we've recently uh, concluded our uh, intelligence services con- have concluded that, you know, the most important th- extremist threat in the United States is that of essentially white supremacist, you know, domestic terrorist forces. Um you know, how does the Biden administration view that kind of challenge? Uh, I mean, not necessarily a white supremacist uh, challenge, but, but you know, a, a kind of authoritarian, illiberal challenge worldwide. There's no question that things have been going in the wrong direction as documented in Freedom House's annual Freedom in the World Report, as documented uh, in our own intelligence conclusions and, and, and others who, who look at these phenomena. Um, But again, uh, I think ultimately people around the world want some say in how their societies are run. Um, And so ultimately governments, societies that cater to, that reflect and provide opportunities to their citizens to have that say are ultimately going to prevail. At least that's what we like to think in in my bureau. But I think it is a, I think it is demonstrably true as well. So um, uh, while we are, uh, you know, suffering, uh, uh, you know, a backlash, if you will, a backsliding uh, among democratic, uh, some democratic countries uh, around the world, um, I do think that uh, uh, people's interest in having a say over their own lives, ultimately um, uh, is going to produce energetic social and political movements uh, that ultimately uh, will prevail in in keeping uh, countries uh, democratic and uh, respecting human rights and the rule of law. And I mean, I'm frankly not sure whether you can get into this, but I wonder, you know, how's the mood at the State Department? I think it was a pretty open secret that things were um, troubled under the previous administration and that there were lots of concerns about longtime civil servants, uh, you know, no longer being feeling as though they could do their jobs very well. Uh, could you describe the, you know, current mood at the State Department? I think the current mood is is very positive. Uh, the Biden administration, in its uh, budget released last week, uh, committed itself to building back the State Department, not just to the level uh, that it was before the Trump administration, but beyond that level, uh, because the Biden administration recognizes that diplomacy is far cheaper and far more effective (laughs) than sending in the troops uh, in terms of trying to keep the peace uh, around the world. So I think that is something that people here in the department feel very good about it. I think it's also the case that the Biden administration is very committed to making the State Department look like the rest of America, to diversifying Uh, the staff at the State Department. And I think that has 
uh, elicited a great deal of support uh, from State Department staff as well. So I would say that generally spirits are up here at State Department because uh, the Biden administra administration recognizes the importance of diplomacy to advancing U.S. interests. And I mean, we're all, you know, all countries at some level at, at present are kind of uh, preoccupied with dealing with this pandemic. But of course, the United States is in many ways, you know, opening up and sort of moving on. I mean, there's a way in which, despite the fact that originally we were the epicenter, or at least one major epicenter of the crisis, we've kind of more or less gotten it under control. It's not to say that people aren't getting sick and dying. They are. Uh, but in a way, it's now moved international and it's become, you know, a, a crisis really for the rest of the world, especially in India, but also Latin America and Brazil. Um, so I wonder whether you see the United States as kind of now in a position to kind of look after some of its own problems, you know, rebuilding our infrastructure, but also re-engaging with the outside world in a way that maybe wasn't the case uh, during the crisis. Well, as you say, John, I do think it gives us an opportunity to focus on some of the other challenges we face. But I think we also recognize how important it is not only to others around the world, but to ourselves to help get the COVID crisis uh, under control. Uh, and that's why Secretary Blinken has appointed the very, very seasoned and skilled diplomat Gail Smith to lead the the COVID diplomacy of the State Department to try to ensure that we are distributing as much, uh, uh, as many of the vaccines as we can to the places around the world uh, that need it. So I think even while we get our own situation under control, we will continue to be emphasizing and spending a great deal of effort in trying to help others get the problem under control as well. Right. And that's obviously a major challenge. Um, I mean, how do you see that unfolding? The, I mean, I think there's been a lot of concern that COVAX, this uh, alliance of countries and organizations to get the rest of the world vaccinated has been, you know, not thrilled, I think, about the way things have been going and the kind of decisions that have been made or not made about relaxing patent restraints and those sorts of things. Um, I mean, how likely do you think it is that uh, the rest of the world will get vaccinated? I mean, there have been a number of studies and I've, I've interviewed uh, a couple of Turkish economists who did a study about how, you know, damaging it would be for our economies. You know, that's not obviously the only issue, but for our economies uh, to not get this done. Uh, because it will affect the ability of our trading partners, for example, to, uh, you know, produce things and ship them out and, and that sort of thing. So, Look, I'm not a public health expert, so I don't want to prognosticate about whether and how we will get a response to COVID or COVID under control. But I can speak to the fact that the Biden administration is absolutely committed to addressing this problem internationally as well as nationally. And again, the fact that Biden administration has appointed Gail Smith, an extremely experienced diplomat who has worked in Africa and other key countries around uh, the world, uh, 
who knows public health issues, former administrator at uh, USAID, uh, I think that demonstrates that this administration really does want to do what it can to address the problem. Great. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, I want to thank Scott Busby for sharing his insights about the Biden administration's foreign policy in East Asia and elsewhere, really. Uh, Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.